0: hey everybody it's jason welcome or welcome back to the mosaic church podcast at the end of this podcast please take a moment to connect with us on social media it's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at mosaic most importantly hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey enjoy one of the most famous tightrope walkers in the history of tightrope walking, if there is such a thing, was a French acrobat by the name of Jean Francois, and he is better known to those in the tightroping community as Monsieur Charles Blondin. And Charles, from a very early age, knew that he wanted to walk on tightropes. In fact, at the age of four, he set up two different chairs in his living room with a rope stretched across and he mounted that rope and began to practice what would one day become his career. He set out at an uh, early age to be the first man to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And on June 30, 1859, 25,000 thrill-seekers gathered on the American and Canadian border to watch Mr. Blondin attempt This harrowing stunt. Of course, this was 1859. There were no nets. There were no safety ropes. So as Mr. Blondin began to walk this tightrope, if he fell, there was nothing there to catch him. As he went from one side to the other and made it safely, the crowd erupted in cheers for his success However, as he turned and began to looking back to make his way across back to the other side, he took one step out onto the rope and stopped. Turned and looked at the audience on this side of the border that was cheering for him and asked them one question. Do you believe that if I step out across this tightrope now that I can carry someone on my shoulders? The audience erupted in cheers And they all raised their hands and said, yes, we believe that you could. They had just seen him walk across this tightrope, and they believed that he could carry someone across his shoulders if he wanted to. Mr. Blondin nodded and took one more step, stopped, and turned around and looked at the audience and said, who is willing to sit on my shoulders? The audience grew quiet. In fact, accounts of that day said, had there not been Niagara Falls in the background, you could have heard a pin drop in that gorge. Not a hand went up. Not a uh, voice was raised to say, I will. Eyes were cast upon the ground, hoping he wouldn't make eye contact with him. Surely they believed that he could do it, but no one was willing to put their faith in him when their life was at stake. I wonder, this morning, church, for those of us who are gathered here, had we been there on June 30th, 1859, standing in that crowd, as Mr. Blondin turned and addressed and asked, who will sit on my shoulders, who here would have raised their hand? Now, minus Bob Ranke, because I know a little bit about Bob's past, any of us who are sane, normal people would probably have said no, myself included. We would have let him continue to walk on. Because the truth is, is that belief under duress often reveals the true measure of our faith. Let me say that again. The belief, our belief under duress often reveals the true measure of our faith. In other words, it's very easy for us at times to proclaim something with our mouths when there is no risk involved or there is no danger. However, it is something else entirely to remain steadfast in that faith when life looks you directly in the eyes and says, Who is willing to sit on my shoulders? This past week has been one of those weeks where my, the merit of what I profess with my mouth has been tested by pressure. Specifically, the foundation of my belief of God's sovereignty and His absolute control over my life and the lives of those around me has found itself on shaky ground. If you had asked me one week ago, Pastor, do you believe that God is sovereign and in control of all things? I would have said, absolutely. I know with 100% certainty that my God is sovereign. It's kind of what pastors have to say. And it also would have been very easy to say in that moment. There was no risk. There was no danger that coincided with such a profession. However, seven days later, and the passing of a good friend. And suddenly my assurance of God's sovereignty is not so certain. I vacillated this week back and forth between thoughts of, God, I trust you, to thoughts of, God, where in the heck are you? And this week hasn't been the only week in my life, in my faith journey, where I've had these vacillations back and forth between doubt and faith. There have been many times where I've professed one thing with my mouth about what I believe, that God is in control and sovereign in this world, only to have circumstances in life crush that belief. I want to tell you this morning, church, that there are some times, this week included, that I have a hard time believing that God is really in control when the brokenness of this world scrapes against my faith. There are times that I wrestle with that. And I know as I sit here this morning and stand before you all, I am not the only one. I know that all of us at different points have encountered different heartbreak and experiences that have caused us to question and to doubt the certainty that our God is sovereign, that he reigns in absolute power and authority in this world. In situations like this week, where many of us have tasted the bitter pain of death, can cause us to question. Like me, I know that there are many of you here this morning whose faith has been staggered this week by Brad's passing. If that's you, I want to reiterate, as Pastor Jason did, it's okay. We held a meeting earlier this week for the leadership of this church. Just trying to provide a safe place for the leaders to be able to express their different emotions, their different feelings that they were going through. And I can tell you guys that as I sat there with these leaders, the chief among those emotions being expressed was fear, doubt, anger, and disappointment. And that is coming from the leaders and pastors of your church. So if you find yourself this morning that your faith is reeling, I want to tell you it's okay and that you're not alone. Death has the ability to shake even the most certain of us who stand in belief of God's sovereignty over life. Another area that we oftentimes will wrestle with is the issue of unanswered prayers. Let me ask you something this morning, church. Have you ever prayed for something so diligently only to see it seemingly not come to pass. When I say that, I'm not talking about the prayers that I had as a little boy when I prayed for, God, please give me a Super Nintendo. Or the prayers I've had more recently about, Jesus, please let the Broncos start winning again because I can't handle another losing season. I'm talking about prayers that are offered up before the Lord for a broken marriage, prayers for a wayward child to return home, prayers for a job that is desperately needed, prayers for a bully to leave you alone, or prayers for an illness to be healed when those prayers that we pray so diligently, ask so fervently for God to answer, seemingly go unresponded to, God's silence in those moments can be deafening and can crush our belief that God is really in control. Of course, there's also the issue of injustice that we experience, not only in our own lives, but in the world that we witness around us, isn't there? It doesn't take long, and most of you know that we can turn on our TV, that you can scroll through your social media feed, and it doesn't take long to come across stories to begin to feel like our world is spinning out of control. Every day, we are force-fed. Hundreds of stories through the TV and through the Internet, stories that are heartbreaking, stories of injustice, ranging from political corruption to wars to natural disasters to domestic violence. And all of that, uh, digesting that and processing that, can leave us feeling like we're all on a bus that is careening off a cliff and that if God ever was the driver of this bus, he got off a long time ago. All of us, every one of us here at different points, could point to different moments or situations or circumstances in our lives where we could say that this has caused me to doubt that God is really in control of my life. The good news this morning, church, is that thankfully our God, the God that we serve, has not remained silent in the face of our doubt and uncertainty when it comes to the discussion of whether or not He is in control. As we'll see in just a moment in Psalm 99, God is not an absentee bus driver. And our God is not asleep at the wheel. He is far from it. So I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can certainly turn in your Bible apps to uh, Psalm 99. And together let's discover the assurance of God's absolute sovereignty in all circumstances. However, as you're turning there, it's important that I give you some background on what's happening in this psalm, because in order to fully grasp what is being proclaimed about the nature of the God we serve, we have to understand the cultural context from which this psalm was delivered. Psalm 99 is what many theologians refer to as a royal psalm. It's one of six in the entire book of psalms. And royal psalms derive their name from the fact that they proclaim God as king. Not just king of the Israelite people or the Jewish nation, but that God is king over all of creation. That God reigns over all of creation. And so when we hear that and we begin to read the words of Psalm 99, it might be tempting to begin to believe that this psalm was proclaimed or written from a perspective of national prosperity amongst the Jewish people. In other words, it might be tempting to believe that when we hear this psalm, that it was written during a period of time when things were really good in Jerusalem. And it was easy to say, our God reigns. But if we were to believe that, if we were to assume that, our assumption would be incorrect. Because the truth of Psalm 99 is that it was proclaimed by the Jewish religious leaders to the Jewish people shortly after the Israelites had returned back from exile in Babylon. Seventy years prior, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon had laid siege to the Jewish capital of Jerusalem, and in the process, he razed the city to the ground. There was not a stone left unturned. Not only were their houses destroyed, but the wall that surrounded this great city had fallen, and indeed even the temple of God, where they worshipped this sovereign God, was torn down. So Psalm 99 and the words of Psalm 99 were written not from a place of national prosperity, but they were delivered to the people of Israel amongst the ruin and charred rubble of their beloved city. This was not a prosperous time for the Jewish people. This was not a time of great joy. And yet, despite it all, despite the circumstances that were happening in Jerusalem at that moment, the religious leaders still proclaimed that their God was sovereign. King over all, not only of the Jewish nation, but the entire world. And when I read that, and I I go through that, and try to process that, two questions come to mind. First of all, who the heck are you? And number two, what gives you the right? Like, who are these people that they stand in a situation where there is so much utter despair and heartache, and yet they are still proclaiming praise to their sovereign God? What was it? What was it that they clung to in that moment that gave them assurance that God was in control? Let's turn to Psalm 99 to find out what they say. The psalmist in Psalm 99 says this The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity in Jacob. You have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. And then he continues in verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called upon his name, and he answered them. He spoke to them from a pillar of cloud. They kept his statues and decrees he gave them. The Lord our God, you answered them. You were with, you were to Israel, forgiving God. And though you punish their misdeeds, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The author of Psalms 99 is using the art of repetition to try and draw his audience's attention off of their circumstances and to redirect their focus to the immutable quality about the nature of God that gives assurance of his sovereignty. It's funny because repetition is a tactic that my wife will often use when she feels like my focus is directed elsewhere. She'll say things like, "Uh, are you listening? Or, did you just hear what I said? And if the desired result is not achieved, she will repeat the information and then continue with the same line of questioning to make sure that I got it. Now, what my wife doesn't know in that moment is that, of course, I listen to everything that you say because as a man, one of my great giftings is that we are incredible multitaskers. And if you believe that, I've got a piece of oceanfront property in Colorado that I can sell you as well. But the truth is that the author of Psalms is repeating something over and over again because he's wanting us to catch an important truth about the nature of our God. He says that our God is Holy. Our God is holy. In fact, he repeats that three times in this psalm in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9. And the holiness of God is one of those issues in the church that we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about because holiness is something that can often make us feel uncomfortable. We're more comfortable talking about things like the love of God, the mercy of God, and why those are true The holiness of God is the attribute or the nature of God that we need to focus more on. And so what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean when we say our God is a holy God? There are two different types of holiness according to theologians. There is a majestic holiness of our God, and then there is a moral holiness of our God. And the majestic holiness refers to or highlights the fact that our God alone transcends, that he is distinct from everything created in this universe and is infinitely unique. In fact, Exodus 15.11 speaks to the majestic nature of our God, which reads, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders, Very simply, the majestic holiness of God is the otherness of God. God is not like you and I. If you remember back to the 90s, I think it was the 90s, there was a popular fad of t-shirts that were going around that showed Jesus on the front with his hands kind of outstretched like this, and he was kind of smiling, and at the bottom it said, Jesus is my homie. Anybody remember one of those? Yep, I had one of those. (laughs) And I wore it all the time. Fortunately, I wore it all the time. And I say unfortunately, because why the Bible is clear that we are friends of God through Jesus Christ. Anything that distracts from or removes the holiness from God or brings God down to our level is straight from the pit of hell because God, though we are His friend, He is not your buddy. He's not somebody that you go out with on Friday night. God is distinct. He is holy. He is unlike anything in the created universe. He is majestically holy. The other attribute is that God is morally holy. And that just means that God is morally without sin. He is ethically perfect. perfect. And Leviticus 19.2 speaks to this when it says... Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, "Because Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Thus the word holy, when we encounter it in Psalms 99, refers to the fact of God's absolute greatness. That he is separate above everything outside of creation. As well as being morally separate from sin. And when it comes to God's moral holiness as his followers, we are called to try and be like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being more like Jesus, we want to be more ethically pure. We're talking about being more like our God. But the majestic holiness of God, the separateness of God, that is the nature of God that is reserved solely for God and God alone. God alone is majestically holy. And so it's important to understand that when we're discussing this issue of holiness with our God, that holiness is not so much just an attribute of God that he possesses, as much as holiness is his very nature. Holiness makes up the very nature of his being and influences all his other attributes. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, who was a theologian and pastor, described it this way. He said we often describe God by compiling a list of qualities that we call attributes. We say that God is spirit, that he knows everything, that he is loving, that he is just, that he is merciful, and so on. The tendency is to add the idea of holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify a single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in the general sense. The word is used as a synonym to describe his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy. And his knowledge is a holy knowledge. And his spirit is a holy spirit. In other words, everything that God does is holy, church. And the fact of God's holiness is what the author of Psalms 99 is trying to get our attention, to trying to draw our minds to through the act of repetition Because when we understand that God is holy, it is the foundation for our assurance that our God is in control. And if we don't start with that basis, we have nowhere to go. So the author of Psalms 99 continues and gives us reasons why, because God is holy, that we can have assurance in his sovereignty. The first being that because God is holy, we can have assurance that he rules and reigns in power. Check out what he says in verse 1 through 3. He says, The Lord is King. Let the nations tremble. He sits on His throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above the nations. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. As we discussed earlier, Psalm 99 is a royal psalm. A royal psalm was the psalm that proclaimed God's kingship, not over, only over Jerusalem and over the Jewish people, but over the entirety of creation. The problem is that when we tend to think of authority or power as Americans, our minds tend to drift to politicians. Can I just tell you this morning that our God, thankfully, is not like any U.S. politician in our government? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. His rule is not limited to a specific term. God doesn't have term limits in his reign. Nor is God's rule limited to a geographic location. He doesn't reign just over one state or a nation, but he rules over the entire world. God's rule is universal. Thus it is a different and completely different kind of authority. It is a majestic, holy reign. Because the truth is, church, there is no form of government that ever has been or ever will be like the governance of our God. All things that originate from Him, He is the author and the source of all of creation. And as the source of all of creation, He governs everything that comes to pass. He governs not only, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. When our God speaks, it is done. Scripture says that. There are no vetoes. There are no votes. When God says something, it happens. That is His governance and His rule. And it's sad to me to hear that there are so many believers in the church who at different times have said, God can control one thing, but He doesn't control another. He may direct this, but He can't direct that. Make no mistake, church, that when we come to Psalm 99 and they say that our Lord reigns, they they mean that our God rules over every facet of creation. He rules over life and death of men, the life and death of creation. He rules over death itself. He rules over the thoughts of men, the hearts of men, the plans of men, the destinies of men. Scripture said he rules over our sleep, over our finances, over nations, over pregnancy, over illness, over war, over the raising up of leaders and the casting down of leaders the commission of evil, the using of evil, the preventing of evil, the destroying of evil. Our God is in control of unjust governments as well as just governments. He rules over Satan and his demons, worldwide judgment, eternal torment, and eternal sanctification. Our God holds all of those things in his hand. And this morning, church, I tell you that because our God is holy, He is sovereignly in control. Even when a good friend, a brother, a father, a son, and a husband pass away, our God is still sovereign and in control because he is holy. And because God's rule is so utterly complete... The psalmist urges all people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation to proclaim the goodness of our King. In fact, the word they use is tremble. And that word tremble is a fascinating word because it means to um, quiver or to be moved with fear or to stand in awe of who our amazing God is. It carries with the notion that those who truly understand God's supremacy and His rule over our world do so with a holy fear of that God. Thus, the only legitimate response to the holy rule of our sovereign God is what, as verse 3 says, to praise His great and awesome name. Church this morning when we go back to the story of the Jews hearing the Psalm 99 in the midst of the ruin and rubble, the decay of Jerusalem, and we hear them proclaiming the sovereignty of God and we ask, how or why was somebody able to do that? What gives them peace to be able to proclaim God's sovereignty in that moment? How is it that when anyone who experiences tragedy and heartbreak in this world is still able to proclaim the sovereignty of God it is for this reason, because our praise to God is not based on our circumstances alone, but it is based on the fact that our God is holy. And that is why the author of Psalms proclaimed and urged all who were listening to stand and give praise to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is why it is good and right for us as a church body this morning in the midst of our grief that we are feeling, the heartache and the loss, to praise a God who is eternally holy. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.